Welcome, welcome everybody to our last panel, wrapping up our last week in the course. I'm so excited to have reached this point. Can we try to say the creed together, the full thing? I think I have it memorized, I'll probably ruin it, but it's okay. It'll give it a feeling of authenticity if it's ruined, okay. But. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. Is that right? He ascended to the right hand of the Father? He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. See, I was getting screwed up because he was saying a different version of the creed in my ear the whole time. See, this is the, the problem with so many creeds going on. My bad. Wonderful. But it wasn't wrong, right? No, it was correct. Yeah, there, okay. there are many correct versions of the creed. And so we're doing an ecumenical version from the Book of Common Prayer. So anyway, good job. We made it through. And I know in writing on our final exam, we'll all be able to write that out in a super great way. Um, I'm so excited for these panelists that we have this week. We have one returning person and two new people. On my right, our returning guest, Dr. Jamie Nollingoth, campus pastor Hello. at George Welcome. Fox University. Her demon from Gordon-Conwell, as you know, um, our children go to the same, one of our children at least, go to the same Spanish dual language kindergarten program. Yeah. And so, it's almost two. how's he doing in the program, by the way? Is he liking it? Next year. Uh, he loves it. Is he speaking Spanish yet, fully? Yeah. Yeah. Well, a, li a little bit. He's yeah. yeah, kindergarten level. Yeah. So happy to have you back here, Jamie. Thank you so much for taking this time. We've got two Jamies, so it's a confusing Jamie situation. Jamie N.A., I'll say, and Jamie J., Jamie Johnson, Dr. Jamie Johnson, Ph.D. from Biola in, in leadership studies, um, M.A. from Gordon-Conwell in church history and theology, and I believe did your B.A. here at George Fox, right? That's correct. I you're can't escape. You're a native. You came back to stay. Jamie is one of our campus pastors here, a friend for a long time, one of the people who warmly welcomed me when I moved to Newburgh um, about eight years ago, him and his family, and so, so pleased to have you here, Jamie. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you, yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah. Last but definitely not least, campus pastor, Rusty St. Cyr. Rusty's BA is actually from the place where I finished my BA, Evangel University in Missouri, although we did not go there at the same time. Have you been back there a lot since you graduated? I have not. I have not either, not even yeah. once. That's a, that's a bad message for <laughs> returning to your undergrad institution. Uh, everyone will come back to Fox who graduates here many times. Yes. Um, Rusty's MA is also from George Fox University, also spent some time at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Fun fact, Rusty and I tried to climb Mount Adams last summer. We camped high at 10,000 feet and we were ready, but I got dehydrated severely and sick and we had to go down. But Rusty was crushing it. He was ready. We're, we're pretty good for Flatlander, and I was born below sea level. I so know. That was not that bad. Was not bad. It was not bad for a first I was going to also say, I have a master's in teaching from a school that closed down as well. Nice. Yeah, in California. Congratulations. But it doesn't really count. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? They closed down because of you? Yeah, because, I, because of me. They closed down after <laughs> Rusty was a student there. Um, I'm so excited to have the pastoral team. I wanted to invite them this week. 
if for no other reason, and there are many other reasons because of just who they all are individually, but for this kind of grand summation of the Christian life, we have a grab bag of issues today, like, like we have these past few weeks in some ways, and I want to really challenge them and put some of the tougher questions to them, and I hope you'll join me on text and, and over the written feedback if you can, um, about things like what does it mean to believe? What does it mean to have faith? Heaven and hell. Is this something we can really think about now here on earth? How do, you know, how do we really connect with the Bible? How do we really live a life of Christian service? So these are the kind of questions, big level, and they can animate them and respond, of course, in any way that they want. Um, maybe I could start this way. In the lecture on Monday, I told a story about how I'd connected in a very personal way with a biblical book, indeed with a biblical character, with Jonah, at, at an important time in my life. Um, and it, and it really changed my life, that encounter with God and with scripture. Even though I wasn't reading the text, I was having an experience that was animated by my reading and came alive to me in that moment. I wonder if I could ask the panelists, have you ever had a moment, do you think this is, you know, you can answer this in any way that you want, but I suggested in that lecture that really our biggest connection with the Bible doesn't come through thinking about it or just reading it, but actually living out the experiences of characters, almost as though it's a pattern for our own lives. I wonder if you think that's a good way to read the Bible or to think about the Bible, and if so, or even if not, if you've ever had an experience like that, where you almost like felt like you were having a moment where, where you were, you know, you were Abraham, you were Sarah, anything like that. Has that ever happened to you, spiritually or mystically? I don't know, Jamie, could I start with you? Have you ever? Sure. Yeah, of course. Um, yes. Uh, I appreciated your story about Jonah in your lecture, too. It was yeah. powerful. Um, I need another moment like that, <laughs> again and again, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, when, when um, Dr. Doak had asked this question, I, I do have one that, that I point to again and again, and it is, um, I mean, this is going to sound, I don't know how this is going to sound to you, but the story of Mary and Martha feels really powerful to me um, because of this. When... First of all, I want to maybe start with what that story is. I think that the way that we've told that story in Christian tradition has missed some really key elements. Um, one of the things I would point out is that uh, within kind of that Hebrew-Israelite culture, um, there was this huge expectation for hospitality. I mean, when the, um, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, um, they were commanded to, to take care of the foreigners in their land to, to act with great hospitality. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are all of these passages about hospitality. Additionally, um, the, the world that they lived in was one where there were these really different, um, these different worlds for women and men. And so women didn't have the choice to just sit at the feet of a rabbi. Um, they, they didn't have the choice to just learn from any visiting teacher. The women would have been extending the hospitality to their guests um, by being in another space, cooking a meal, preparing a meal. As the Old Testament would have said, this is what the faithful and holy people um, of God would have done. And so, um, so the story of Mary and Martha is a really powerful one because there's this woman who comes and, and sits among the men in a culture where that just really would not have happened. And she also would have kind of been bringing some shame upon her family because she was not acting out, um, acting out what God had asked of the people of Israel to extend hospitality to the guests in their home. So that background on that story um, my, my first, I, I encountered, what is, can yeah, I, can I yes, jump in here? Yeah. What, where is the, do you know where that story is exactly? Yeah, I wonder if we could just 10? give some background. It's yeah. not, it's not one that we've talked about very clearly yeah, in this class. Sure, so I, don't, okay. I don't know that everybody even knows what that yeah, story is. Yeah, so that's, that's great. That's great. 
Um, so yeah, I think Luke 10, right? Or is it Luke 8? I'm looking in Luke 10. I don't see it, but that's probably my, my problem. Luke 8. Luke 8. Um, no, Luke 12. Not Luke 8. <laughs> Luke 12. We're just going to silently just, scour the Bible. Yeah, I mean, can, can, can you okay, tell the yeah, story yeah, just yeah, from... Luke, okay. No, it is Luke 10. Oh, it is Luke 10. Okay, 38. great. Verse 38. Awesome. Um, so, so the story is, so this Jesus and his followers are, are um, they come to the home of Martha. And, and so Martha is preparing all of these, um, preparing this huge feast for her guests. But Mary, her sister, um, chooses not to help her sister. And she goes and she sits at Jesus's feet to learn from Jesus. And, and Martha, and I think the motive, there would have been a few different motivations here, but Martha goes um, to Jesus and is like, do you wanna, do you wanna send my sister back to do what she should be doing? Um, and I think that there's some saving of face that's probably happening in there. There's probably, of course, the, um, the fact that she would be overwhelmed with the amount of work there would be to, um, to host a large crowd in her home. But Jesus says, no, she has chosen what is better. She can stay, she can continue to listen. It will not be taken away from her. And there's, there is this honor that Jesus gives to Mary and also this extending of this opportunity to sit and learn from the teacher um, that just really hadn't been given in quite, um, in quite that way. I mean, there's this yeah, you can come and, and sit and learn from me. That choice wasn't there for women before Jesus says this. Um, and additionally, in that culture, to be a student of a rabbi also would have been, you don't just, you don't just learn from a rabbi. Um, you, know, you don't just take education lightly. To learn means you are also, you're being trusted with this information so as to share it with others, to become a teacher. And so that's the backdrop that I that I want to share about that that Bible story. Um, when I, as I shared before, I grew up in a Christian home, but my first encounter with Jesus um, was I was on a houseboating trip with my youth group in middle school, and I I had this encounter with God as we were we were traveling. Our houseboat was going from one location to another. I was sitting on the roof of the houseboat, dangling my little legs over, um, and just staring at the water, and. And I had this encounter where the voice of the Holy Spirit spoke to my soul in a way that I could understand, inviting me to friendship. And it, it was startling for me um, and really powerful and led me to spend the rest of that week on that trip like digging into scripture. We had this, the next day, the youth ministry had set aside like this three hour gap of time for us to sit on this lawn in this park and, and to just be with God, which is like a huge task to ask of a seventh grader to just spend all this time sitting alone with your Bible. But because of the encounter I'd had with the Lord the day before and the first one of its kind, the first time I had ever experienced God interacting with me personally, um, I was just reading my Bible and just devouring it. And I was so caught in like who God is. And I was um, blown away by it. And what ended up happening from there was that I started telling my friends about this Jesus that I was encountering. I started talking about who God is. And my youth ministry started saying, oh, why don't, here, why don't we give you a microphone? Why don't you share more about what you've experienced about God? Actually, why don't you teach the Sunday school class? Why don't you lead 
this small group? Why don't you be this camp counselor? Have you ever considered ministry? And before I knew it, I was kind of launched into this world of talking about Jesus. And, and I think the thing that feels really powerful about the Mary and Martha story is I was, a, I was a woman kind of launched into this world that is, I mean, a lot of people in ministry are men, and I hadn't intended to become someone who was like the one speaking about Jesus, the one who was um, following Jesus in those ways, but my fascination with Jesus and listening to Jesus and spending time with Jesus led me into this world that was really countercultural in some ways. And um, and so I think that would be the story that I would, I would highlight, um, that, that one particular, how spending time with Jesus sometimes leads us into like doing things and being a part of things that, um, that may feel risky, scary, require courage, but just we're, we're motivated by the love of God and what God has done in mm. our own lives. Mm. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, so I was... I was raised by a pack of Pentecostals, and uh, and we read the book of Acts a lot. But we read so beginning of my childhood, we we uh, we read it kind of in my life. The book of Acts has been like this onion that's had different layers. So the the first layer, most of my childhood, was this um, this Acts chapter two, the beginning of the the new movement of the church. And so Jesus tells them to go wait in an upper room. And they do it, and it's this prayer meeting. I'm sure there was lots of uh, Hillsong worship or something up there, and then they would just wait. And, and then all of a sudden, this tornado wind blows in into the, into the room. All these uh, little fires appear on everyone. Everybody starts speaking in other languages and other tongues. And, um, and then my Pentecostal church roots would say, and that's the end of the story, and let's all go do that. And so we would just spend all our time trying to, mimic that and um there were some good times doing that uh you might experience some of those brian uh it wasn't till later i don't i think it's i don't know when i uh, probably in in this ministry called chi alpha in in missouri state i got involved in, and there was these christian students um living in a, a school of about seventeen thousand students trying to be Christian, trying to be Jesus folks amongst a place that wasn't really supporting their their um, faith. And so I started hanging out with them, and they had roommates that were all over the map, faith-wise and not faith. And we would have small groups there, and we would worship and, and gather in student unions and things like that. And it was like with that group that I started to read and understand the rest of Acts chapter 2. Like after the, all that stuff happened that was like super heavenly and supernatural, there was um, people from all over the world gathered and heard their own languages being spoken. And then God spoke to them through that. And then Peter preaches a really long-winded sermon. And then a lot of people come to faith. And then it keeps going. And at the end, it, show, it shows this community comes together and they share meals, they share, they worship together. They... Uh, give everything they have into this big pot and then everybody that is in need is no longer in need. And they see constant miraculous things happening all the time. It's like the end of the chapter two that I'd never really reflected on that was also a part of the Spirit's outpouring. And that was like the second layer of the onion for me. And then like the, <clears throat> the next layer for me was 
all the way back in Genesis, I think, 10, is this story the, of Babel, the Tower of Babel. I don't know if you've heard this. It's, it's a really brief story in the book of, in book of Genesis that added another layer to this, that it was a moment where the humans of that time and period said, we want to make a name for ourselves, and they had this new technology to make bricks instead of stones so they could stack and make this huge tower, and they just started really building a skyscraper, and then it says, God says, what will happen if they accomplish what they're trying to do, and he confuses their languages and disperses them. And so attaching that story to these other ones all, all of a sudden made kind of a lot of things make sense, that God is, God is up to this long game. Like God has got this massive arch going on with humanity, that stuff that may have happened to, to um, mess things up earlier, God is, is not done with that. And that also he is still working and still involved and that he's reversing some of the things, and using those bad experiences to kind of compost it into the future. So, so this also the big part of this is that the, the infancy stage of the church, the, where Jesus said, this is how I want you guys to start, go in that upper room and do this thing. Right at the outset, the church is, uh, when it's born, it's multilingual, it's multiracial, it's multicultural, and it is driven by the spirit, not by any one group that's in power. And it's really counter to what's going on in the empire at the time. And in that end of chapter two, it really says that. It really says they live in this counter community. And it really spoke to me in terms of my own faith. Hmm. You ever become a biblical character, identified deeply with a particular past? Yeah, um, this might tell a lot about me, but it's a kid that I've identified with. Um, the story of 1 Samuel 3, when, um, when Samuel is a little boy, he's serving in, um, he's serving in the temple, he's, he's being mentored by this man named Eli, who's a priest, who's at the end of his life, and the end of his ministry, and this little boy hears the voice of God, and he doesn't know that he hears the voice of God, he needs uh, people in his life to say to him, that's God, you know, when you hear that, say, speak, Lord, uh, your servant is listening, uh, and I think when I, when I was a, a kid, having people in my life who like Eli, who would, would say to me, like, you, you, have, you have some things to offer to our community. Like, would you be so bold to do it? And me thinking, I'm just a, I'm just a kid. I don't really have anything. Um, and, and seeing what happened through Samuel, and then um, later on in the New Testament, seeing Christ and how he welcomed children and how he was uh, someone who not just welcomed them because that's like the socially acceptable thing to do, which it, at that point it probably wasn't, but welcome them because they had something um, to teach the people around them. Uh, they, were, they were not um, just uh, tag-alongs, but they were someone through whom God was speaking and God was working. And uh, that's just been really meaningful to me, um, knowing that uh, when I was a kid, people saw things in me, but also like recognizing like God can speak to and through anyone. And, and are we doing a good job of listening to whoever that might be, whether they're, you know, just babbling toddlers or, um, you know, 90-year-old, uh, a 90-year-old grandma who has um, seen and done so much in her life. So, hmm. yeah. yeah, I like that. I want to go to a student comment on text, a particular one, because it just, it dovetails with something that's my own concern. So, dear student, your concern is my own as well, and I'll, I'll read the text, and I'll tell you why it's also my own concern, and then ask you all just to jump in in any way you want. 
Student says, look, the idea, they didn't say look, I'll just read it. The idea of life everlasting and getting into heaven is very distant from me and difficult to understand. Does Jesus, the Bible, and Christianity mean anything more than a get out of hell card? And I like that, that question resonates just with my own spirit in a sense because to the extent that I was raised in church, which was not, I was, but then there was a period where I kind of wasn't, it was a little confusing. It wasn't like we were a church family all the time, but we mostly were. My faith growing up, especially as, as a young person going into like elementary school, middle school, certainly high school, maybe even college to some extent, although I, I kind of changed in college as I hope you are as well, was very much this. It was like the ideal was in, in the faith communities my family was a part of. I don't know if this is anyone else's experience. The idea would be that you would, get, you, you would try to be invoked or, or coaxed to pray a certain prayer. And the prayer would be like, Jesus, I, you know, God, I believe that you're real. I believe that you know, Jesus died on the cross and rose again for my sins. And by believing that, I accept your gift of totally unmerited favor into my life. I invite you into my heart, Jesus. You know, I remember, you know, like, what does that mean? Like invite, like a little door comes and he goes into the heart, you know, amen. And like that prayer was a, was a, was a cause of celebration in, in my particular Christian communities because it meant that you had passed from tumbling literally headlong into the fires of hell into being snatched up by Jesus' wonderful grace and now you're going to heaven. And I think the idea of heaven and hell, for, at least for like, I don't know, a lot of people, it's like a big deal. Like if you thought you were gonna be eternally, consciously tortured by demons in a fire for eternity unless you prayed a prayer, why would you not pray that prayer? Like just in case, you know what I mean? But like you have to mean it right. And I think, I think starting off my life of faith that way, even though I had good mentors in the faith and, and people were trying, I don't know, it just created kind of like this weird conflict in my life as I grew up, probably not unlike the question asker and unlike some of you, which is like, what is the Christian life supposed to be exactly? Is it just something I say I believe? And then like, I'm, like what is this life even for at that point? If this world is a kind of a test to see who prays that prayer or who believes the right religion or who goes to the right church or however you want to put it, right? It sounds like God created the world as a pretty cruel test, one which most of us would fail, actually, and, uh, you know, like what? So I sort of identify with the spirit of that question, which is just like, what are we doing? I don't know. As pastors, do you encounter this mentality? Do you share this mentality that life is a kind of a, a weird test to see who gets into heaven and who gets into hell? Is that an appropriate way to think about it? What, I mean, what counsel would you give to, to people like me or people like this student asking that question about faith? I also really appreciate that question. That was one of, that was one of my biggest questions uh, right in the end of college to the middle that it was really test that I almost threw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of my own faith because this didn't make sense to me. The, the most important, let's just sum it up. The most important commandment is what? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, right? So it's really wrapped around this love. God is love and you're supposed to love and all this stuff. But the way to get into heaven is self-preservation. Avoid hell. Like the way, basically the, the biggest motivator with that, with that kind of uh, answer, like the way to get to heaven is say this prayer and you escape hell. And that's really about you. That's really about saving your own butt. You know what I mean? So to me, it didn't make sense. Like that's what we're spreading the good news for is to save, get people to save themselves. <laughs> save yourself. <laughs> right? And that has nothing yeah. to do with the commissions and the, why discipleship? Why are we commissioned to go make disciples if it only matters that they save their own butts after hell. After. Why did Jesus even do any teachings? He shouldn't have taught us right. anything. He just should have said, pray this prayer and save yourself from hell. Right. Like, 
in that sense, like the only thing we should be doing is getting the biggest jumbotrons possibly around the world and getting people to say this prayer as quick as possible and then kill them or whatever, you know, like Yeah, no, that's actually, that sounds gruesome, but that's very rational. Like immediately, yeah. so they don't, you know, right. rev you know revert right, on that right. prayer. Uh, but, but you're not going to go to heaven. Yeah, exactly. Well, at least one of us, one of us will Someone's going to take the fall for humanity. Uh, and kill but everybody. like, it doesn't make sense with the arch of the New Testament, and the Old Testament for that matter, that this God is wanting to cultivate something that maybe echoes beyond your life. And that isn't really about you saving your own life. Because even Jesus' own words, if you want to save your life, you lose it. And the worst thing that could possibly happen is you spend all your time to save your own life and, and lose eternity kind of thing. So for me, uh, this Trinitarian vision that God is love, God is this community of, of lover, loving, loving, being loved, uh, that kind of tells me something about why this matters, this life matters. It's not just a waiting period or a just got to get people to pray a prayer mm. so they can save their, save themselves later. Mm. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things I've come to over the years is, is God is your home. I mean, that is like the truest just the truest thing, like making your home in Jesus, making your home in God, that this is the point. I grew up um, in the Presbyterian church and one of the things that was a part of that upbringing was um, this catechism, this, this phrase, um, which has actually been really helpful to me um, over the years. And, and it asks, the question is, what is the chief purpose of humankind? And then the response, is the chief purpose of humankind is to glorify and enjoy God forever. And, and so those two things, I mean, the glorify, there's like a worship and a serve and, you know, do the things that make, make God happy, but the, but the enjoy, like this freedom to like this relational piece of, of relationship with God, that like this human existence is about those things. It's about enjoying God. Like this is the starting place for an eternity of enjoying God. And if we miss out on the opportunity that we have in this lifetime to enjoy God, I mean, we're missing out on, on like just this tremendous treasure. Um, I think it's easy to sort of think about like home being maybe grounded in um, family. Who are the, who will I marry? Who will my children be? You know, these kind of things. or. But really, in truth, those factors, I mean, change all throughout your life. You know, sometimes your family is your family of origin. And sometimes, you know, there's maybe there's marriage, but then maybe there's death of a spouse. I mean, they're, they're, your, your home life is always changing. But, like, to build your home in God, to, like, live there, to enjoy relationship with God, and to have that be um, the beginning of eternity um, that, that it isn't just saying a prayer and then like, oh, eternity begins after I die. No, like eternity begins now. Like we have this opportunity to get to know the living God and to enjoy the goodness of that relationship. Like this is an incredibly sweet, rich, loving, safe, wonderful, scary, um, 
relationship that, that is your truest home, that will be your home when you suffer grief and loss, that will be your home on your best days, that will be your home um, if you're under persecution, that will be your home when you're asking big questions. This is the, this is the center. And so this lifetime is not just like, hey, say a prayer and then and then your life begins later. No, this is the beginning of all eternity of enjoying the goodness of God. I'm just going uh, yeah, go to reflect it. a bit of, about what you shared on Monday because you talked about this idea that we we have no idea what what heaven and hell are like. I mean, we we have these sort of literary um, explorations of them. We have a few things that are mentioned in Scripture about uh, that seem a little bit esoteric, but we don't have any idea. And so it's hard for us to conceptualize. This, this afterlife, right? And, and, and we are, uh, we're so image-driven that the ways that it's been conceptualized for us often um, determine how we view the afterlife. Um, and, and the problem that I always have is my imagination of what the afterlife is is really pathetic. <laughs> um, uh, when, I think about, uh, when I think about how, when I think about eternity, like Francis Chan does this thing, if you've seen it, right, where he has this rope that extends off the screen, um, they, it looks like it extends forever, and the end of it is like this little red, red part of it that's like a very minuscule amount of the rope. And, and he says, like, this is your life that you're going to live in, uh, in context to eternity. And it's this, it's this minuscule part of the rope. I, and, and you look at the rope, and it just it freaks me out. I remember being a kid in church on a Sunday morning. The sermon must have been really boring um, because I'd find myself thinking, like, I can't fathom eternity and it's freaking me out. I don't, I don't have a way to think, because everything always ends, right? When you're a little kid, um, your parents always tell you to stop watching TV, that ends, right? They tell you to stop eating sugar, that ends, right? Everything ends. I can't fathom something that lasts forever. And I can't fathom anything good lasting forever, right? All the hard things last forever, but the goodness doesn't last forever. At least that's my, my concept as a kid as, as I'm living my life. And so, one, I don't have an imagination for um, the the eternal, but I, I do know that uh, that there uh, it's not like a a disconnect. Uh, there's not a disconnect between the life we're living now and the life that we're experiencing eternally. It's not like you know when you die, all of a sudden who you were disappears. Like there's there's this um, maturation that's happening now that is also extending into into the afterlife. And so uh, the ways in which you are perfecting, uh, we talk about the word holiness or sanctification, right? A, a theological terms. Right? The ways that you are perfecting your life now, those aren't just so that during this life, like things are great. Those are, uh, those are uh, maybe a, a way to think about this. Those are robes or clo- pieces of clothing that you're putting on now that you're carrying with you. Like there is an aspect of, of who you are and how you live your life that's, that's going with you. Now, um, C.S. Lewis has this book called The Great Divorce where he talks about hell being uh, extreme isolation, right? Uh, you know, forget about the, the fire, wherever we get that from, right? Dante or, or from um, a, a garbage pile burning just outside of Jerusalem, whatever it might be, right? But he talks about this extreme isolation, right? And that we are living, um, uh, when we are choosing ourselves over God, that we're moving further and further away from God. Um, and, and the people who, as he describes, the people who are living those kinds of life are like Hitler or uh, Napoleon, like people who've done really awful, horrible things in this life. Why? Because there's a connection between how we're living now and what's happening later. It's not just I pray a prayer and then I can live however I want. 
Like when Jesus says to people, you have to pick up your cross and follow after me, he's not saying like just literally put a cross on your back and then walk around and live your life like you're going to. Right? There is this, this um, invitation into sacrifice that Jesus is inviting us into. Not just because how we live now is how that's how he wants us to live, but because that's forming us for how we're going to live our lives um, in eternity. And, and I do think there is going to be a living your life in eternity. It's not just sitting on a harp, or sitting on a cloud playing a harp, right? How boring of an eternity would that be? You know, that image of heaven came during a time uh, in uh, medieval times when people, all they could think about was, uh, uh, you know, relaxation for the rest of their life because they were, they were indentured slaves. They were working in ways that caused them to think like, wouldn't it be so great to spend forever sitting on a nice fluffy cloud, AKA a bed, right, listening to music. Isn't that wonderful, right? Um, our, uh, the, uh, the afterlife is going to be life. Like the, it's a new heaven and a new earth. The things that you love to do now, you gift to do now, you're going to be doing those um, in some capacity, in some way, in some economy in the afterlife. And when I think about it that way, I think about the fact that if I want to become a better runner, I've got to run, I've got to think about um, the way that I'm running, how I'm training to be a runner. Those, if I think about my Christian life in that way, like there's a sense of training, there's a sense of learning, there's a sense of, of um, what I'm becoming now. It's not just for now, just like uh, you know, uh, the Christian life is not just for later, right? Then that, that gives me a sense of, of there's work to do now and also um, the, the, the work that God, that Jesus did on the cross is enough for me to be, a, be able to experience that that afterlife. It sounds like the vision I'm hearing from all three of you in different ways kind of shaping up is that following Jesus and finding our home in God now is in fact part of our eternal destiny. And there's not quite maybe this dividing line we think about at death where it's like, I'll die and I'll be transformed into some other kind of being. And I, I mean, remember from the creed, the resurrection of the body. Do you remember that phrase? What does that mean? Whose body do you think is getting resurrected? Do you think you're going to get resurrected in somebody else's body? or some body from outer space. I mean, presumably the Christian belief, the resurrection of the body is that it's you, right? And so that the you that you are somehow just keeps on going. And so it helps me a little bit to think of it as this continuing thing. I wanna weave together a couple of student questions. I had a barrage of texts about a variety of things and so I'll do my best to try to weave them. We only have about five minutes here so I want us to budget our time well. We have to give our students time to write their reaction papers to all this. Um, you know, in terms of like thinking about like salvation, like, okay, I'm right with God, whether it's praying a prayer or loving in a certain way or doing whatever one does, um, is that like a state of being that you can slip in and out of during this life? I mean, and, and what about, I don't know, just this feeling of like another person was talking about, about sin, just like feeling like, okay, like I live my life. I know I'm supposed to like feel really bad about sins and stuff like that, but like maybe I just don't. You know, and like maybe sin is just like what people call sin is just us learning and growing and so on. And I don't know, I just don't feel like I, I, I maybe I want to have this urgency about that, but I just don't really have it. Um, you know, does that, does that suddenly mean I've lost my place with God or, you know, like what? I don't know. Could you, could, is there any way you could address those kind of things in a brief way? I know these are huge topics. I don't want to answer it, but I want to add a, a lens to it that yeah. may impact the answering of that. We, it's my, it's my opinion, we live in, the most individualistic uh, coast of the most individualistic country, the most individualistic hemisphere of the world. We look at everything through individual lens, even things like sin and salvation. It doesn't mean we don't have an individual self, but we don't at all hardly ever see 
things from a collective lens, which is a, a lot of the rest of the world does. And so when we read scripture, we read it through me and my salvation, me and my relationship with God. How am I getting myself to my eternity with heaven? Um, what if it's not just that? What if there's more to salvation, like God is saving the whole thing? Like what if there is sin that's more than just my sin in my own heart? What if there's sin in the systems of our world and the relationships that God is healing and resurrecting from the dead? What if God is resurrecting the whole cosmos, not just my body? Let me just add that lens to the conversation. Yeah, I was going to just bring up quickly a, a scriptural image of, of salvation as a communal event, 1 Corinthians 10. We didn't discuss this, but Paul there says, For I did not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. He's talking about the Exodus where they go through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. So much fascinating imagery there that we could talk about, but I just wanted to point out that that is actually an imagery not of an individual getting baptized or going through the sea, but in fact of a community kind of moving together through the desert. And so scripture does have these images of, of communal failure or communal success in that sense, so it's not such a crazy image to think in, in those terms, at least in the, in the, on the terms of the New Testament. Maybe it's not just about me, but about my community as well. I don't know, what, what would you two add to the, these questions the students are asking about moving in and out of salvation and about the awareness of sin, but, uh, you know. Yeah, I, I think I would add to it, like, uh, who knows, right? I mean, there's a sense where we, when, you, when you are saved, do you get a license that shows up in the mail? Be like, hey, congratulations, <laughs> you're saved, right? I, mean, that, I did actually I, get one of those. Yeah, <laughs> I did. All right, yeah, maybe if you signed up for the newsletter from, I did from Salty or whatever, yeah. I did not. Um, there, there, there's a sense where, like, all of us, um, what's like, we're working out our salvation in fear and trembling. Like every single day, we have an invitation to accept Christ, right? Every single day, we have an opportunity to to live for Christ. And there are going to be days where we f get to the end of it, we're like, "Dang, I killed that!" Right? That was incredible. I was a disciple for Christ in an incredible way. I did so many wonderful things. There are going to be times where you end the day and you're like, "Who am I?" Why would I even think of myself as a follower of Christ, right? And, and this sort of like this undulating way of living our lives is, is part of being human. And the question of, uh, am I saved today? Am I not saved today? Um, th those are not the types of questions that, um, that Jesus invited his followers to ask. He, he invited them to, to, to walk with him, to, um, to live life with him, to pray with him. Um, and, and that as we, as we view life as a journey, there are going to be times where our heart is very soft and we're convicted about the, the, what seems like the most minor things. There'll be times where our heart is very hard and we feel like uh, nothing, you know, nothing we do is a sinner. There, there are aspects of life, depending on what's going on, where um, those are going to describe you. And, and if, you, if you find yourself saying, am I saved today or am I not saved today? That, that's not the question that Jesus is asking you. The question that Jesus is asking you is, is, are you with me? Are you walking with me? Are you listening to me? Are you seeking to see me in, in every interaction that you have, in every place that you go? And I think if we, if we live our lives in that way, it becomes less about, am I, am I saved right now or am I not saved right now? It becomes more about, how, how am I seeing you, God, at work and what's going on? And how, am I, uh, how are you working in my life as well? Um, and uh, that to me is freeing. Mm. Um, I also think about the story that Jesus says, like, um, if, if, you're, if the cup is clean on the inside, 
but it's dirty on the outside, you're much more likely to drink out of it than if it's dirty on the inside but clean on the outside, right? And how how likely am I to say, well, from all appearances, it looks like I'm clean, it looks like I'm great, it looks like I'm doing well, but if the inside is dirty, right, that's problematic, right? And on the flip side, if the outside, if there are some parts that people look at and they're like, he's, he's got some work to do, right? But the inside, there's a sense of like this, this cleansing that's going on with the Holy Spirit who um, is working and convicting and leading um, that, that can't be seen by other people, right? Some that can't even be seen by myself, right? But to know that God is at work um, that, that in some ways is uh, comforting to me mm. um, and also a little bit scary. But. Jamie, we have about 60 seconds. I don't know. Is there anything yep, you can yep, add to I this? Can really yeah. fast. Um, I wanted to comment on the, the text that was about not necessarily feeling bad about my sins, which I, I mean, I think we can probably all resonate with. Um, the thing that is striking me about that is that I think we have to. Our, our culture tells us to trust a lot in our feelings, but in faith, I think we have to take that encouragement of our culture with a grain of salt. Um, one of the thing, one of the reasons that, as Christian tradition, we have done things like go to worship together as a community each week, or why maybe some of you have been encouraged to spend time with the Lord each morning, reading scripture and praying, and some of these other spiritual disciplines, is because sometimes what we're feeling um, isn't necessarily gonna lead us into deeper intimacy with God. Like, I, I have things I need to repent of, whether I feel like it or not. You know, I have things um, that, that I need to talk with the Lord about, whether I feel like it or not. Like, God needs to be worshiped whether I feel like it or not, and so I think there's this encouragement of Christian tradition to engage in some practices out of routine because it's it's good for our soul and because it's good for God. And so sometimes we don't grieve our sins, but like the practice of like, okay, but you know what? Let's just try anyway is really good for us. And the other, the last thing I want to say is, um, you've talked about some really significant um, theological themes um, and questions this semester and all all year, all semester. Um, and know that if any of these continue to rattle around inside of you, the campus pastor, like one of our very favorite things is sitting down for you, sitting down with you for coffee and just talking about theology and talking about faith. And so if you want to continue the conversation, even though you may feel like you don't really know who we are, um, you know, we'd love to take you to chapters or coffee cottage or visit in our office, whether it's this year or sometime next year and just continue the conversation. So we invite you to that if you'd like. I've taken advantage of the campus pastors, all three of them, to do exactly that. Myself, as a faculty member, I hope you will too. Will you join me in thanking them for this panel?